You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. We met a pair of young movie makers who are filming their own version of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Their summer project is the subject of tonight's page 13. It's become a cult favorite. They used real snakes, did their own stunts, and nearly burnt down their mom's house. I don't know how to explain this, but it's Raiders of the Lost Ark, remade shot for shot by 11-year-old kids in 1982. I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. Just the idea that these two guys were able to make this movie over a period of seven years, to me, is absolutely mind-boggling. They were in college by the time it was finished. Who's got that much time and energy? The fact that they didn't burn down the house is a miracle. Seems like a good example of bad parenting. You're not just watching Raiders, you're rooting for the kids to succeed. It's the best feeling I've ever had in my life. We kind of missed out on our childhood. But the whole time we realized we were filming our childhood. Once that became part of their lives, it's almost as if they've never been able to shake it, even up until now. After we finished, I would have a recurring dream that somewhere we would be shooting the airplane scene. On some level, it haunted me that we never did this. The fact that I get to do this, shoot the airplane scene, and begin the adventure again. You want to make God laugh, tell him you have a plan. It just slowly progressed downward. Very dangerous today. Pull the plug now or spend more money than you planned. I don't think the words you're going to be fired were used. Done. I will never work with that guy again. You gave up, man. I'm sorry. I don't want to be part of it. I'm going to kill you. Action. Francisco, stop. Three, two, one. Oh, no. The plane is just going. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Rod Lott. Thanks, Mike. Throw me the whip. I'll throw you the idol. On this special episode, we are talking about Raiders, the story of the greatest fan film ever made. The documentary from 2015, directed by Jeremy Kuhn and Tim Skousen. The greatest fan film of the title is a movie most people call Raiders or Raiders Redux or just the Raiders fam film. It's kind of a shot-for-shot remake of Raiders of the Lost Ark by a bunch of high school kids in Mississippi made over years and years in the 1980s. So, Rod, when was the first time you ever heard about this Raiders fan film? I am actually not sure when the book came out, which I know we'll discuss. I mentioned that in the review that I cannot remember. I want to say it probably was some news segment on Entertainment Tonight or something like that, where they referred to it as Raiders of the Lost Ark, the kids' version. But I cannot be 100% sure or even 50% sure. I just know that I saw a segment somewhere and then read about it probably in Premiere or Movie Line magazine or something on down the line. But, uh, you know, that's a mystery in itself. I remember this kind of from my tape trading days mm-hmm. and getting a copy of it and and whoever it was that sent it to me kind of sent it to me like, you're going to love this. I'm going to send it to you, but you can't make any copies for anybody. <laughs> and I was just like, okay, what is this? It's, it's Raiders of the Lost Ark made by a bunch of kids. And I was like, I, I really don't need to see that. <laughs> so I think I had kind of the opposite reaction to what most people, when they hear it, they're like, oh my God, I got to see that. How did these kids do it? But I'm like, 
Yeah, no, no, that that sounds embarrassing to me. So I just kind of like put it on the back shelf of my mind kind of thing and really didn't think about it. And then every once in a while, it's like there's a news cycle, right? So like every once in a while, I would hear about this fan film again. I'd be like, yeah, yeah, I've got a VHS copy of that somewhere. I really need to check that out. And, you know, pretty soon it's getting out on YouTube and all this stuff. So I'm just like, okay, well, I can can get rid of the VHS tape finally. I think it was probably – uh, the last time I really remember uh, reading about it or hearing about it was during the uh, the release of the book. And I was just like, yeah, 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 I remember that. I remember that. And now it's like everywhere because of this documentary coming out. It's like my Facebook page is just blown up with all of these news stories. I'm just like, is this news to you guys? Because I've known about this for like a decade or something. Right. <laughs> but, okay. I'm, I'm kind of with you. The uh, It was, you know, I, I did the tape trading thing too in the pre-DVD days, and it was on everyone's list. I never went for it because my want list was, you know, already too long with other things, like the entire filmography of Dario Argento. I, I, was, not, uh, I was not that anxious to see it. And I love Raiders of the Lost Ark, so the idea of seeing any other version of Raiders of the Lost Ark, I was just like... Yeah, okay, take it or leave it kind of thing. I don't know, it just kind of left me a little cold for some reason. But I have to say, watching the documentary, the documentary is very exciting, and it definitely makes the film look a little bit better than it is, I have to say, because I have subsequently gone back. After seeing the documentary, I finally went back and watched the fan film, and the documentary definitely does a great job of using some of the best parts and explaining yeah. how they did some of the parts of the docu- of the fan film. So I, when I watched the whole thing, I was just like, okay, yeah, this was pretty good. This was very, very ambitious. But I have to say that I would prefer the documentary to the finished product. I agree. And I'm totally with you on the whole idea behind the fan film because when I was a kid and – wanted to make movies, although I didn't have the access to such things. Like I wanted to make a sequel to Flash Gordon or, you know, another version of Raiders of the Lost Ark, like another story. I've never thought about remaking a movie. To me, that just, that seemed pointless. But then again, I don't have a documentary about myself either. So I guess they knew what they were doing. Good on them, bad on you, Rod. That's kind of my life's motto right now there is a lot of ambition obviously to this whole idea of redoing raiders of the lost ark and using high school kids and doing this thing and it was interesting to see you know how the kids would kind of change from scene to scene sometimes they'd be older sometimes they'd be younger (laughs) and so it was it was very interesting and and i know as a high school student it would have been a great sense of pride for me to have some sort of video of like, hey, we made this when we were in high school. Yeah. So I I can really appreciate it from that angle. But I have to say that I really appreciate what they were doing with this documentary because they they span time in such an interesting way with it because they kind of come at it from at least three different angles with – here's what the fan film is, and here's kind of what the making of the fan film was like. They're also cutting against that with, here's what the these kids, quote-unquote, what these grown adult men are up to now. They're trying to complete 
the film by doing one last scene for it. And then at the same time, they're kind of right in the middle with here's the discovery of the fan film and how it kind of came to light a few years ago. So it's interesting how they're kind of going back and forth and, and shuttling between these different eras. And it's very, very seamless. And I can really follow it very well. And it really tells a great story. It does. And I, um, I can't say that I kept track of the time as well. I gave up, but it ultimately it didn't matter. I mean, it tells the story it tells, and the story itself is easy to follow. But year to year, I I couldn't keep keep track of when was when, and you know what grade were they in, what age were they. Right. That really doesn't matter at all. But they were absolutely resourceful and really inventive, and they had that. You know, I mean, just the fact that they did it—that's what is you know ultimately worth a documentary. Yeah, I'd be very curious if I was to remake something shot for shot, what that film would have been. You know, even when I was younger, like I remember having dreams of doing like a sequel to Black Shampoo. I remember having a dream <laughs> when I was like 18 of like, what would that sequel be like? Could could Freddy come back from the dead kind of thing? Or would he have survived the first film? You know, those kind of things. But And, and obviously when I was a, a much younger kid, I remember trying to – it was basically writing fan fiction of like what the next Star Wars film would be yeah. after – you know, after Empire or maybe between Star Wars and Empire and, you know, having the old manual typewriter and typing out these horrible, horrible stories, you know, <laughs> that lifted major parts of other things, you know. But, yeah, it was it was original, but it was terrible. Absolutely. The ones then, like I mentioned, the one I remember the most is a sequel to Flash Gordon. Uh, and I do also remember doing one to Superman and a parody of The Legend of the Lone Ranger. But... Other than that, I have no idea. I think I was probably really obsessed with Hardware Wars at that point. <laughs> I wanted to do my own Hardware Wars of some big-budget film. And, of course, I picked the one that flopped completely, but that's what happens when you're 10 years old. But, hey, it's it left it wide open for a sequel with with the ring and everything at the end. And <laughs> I know. Do they even have a, a question mark at the end of the original Flash Gordon? It did. <laughs> were you a big Raiders of the Lost Ark fan when you were younger? I was. And I do remember it's the, one of the movie-going experiences I remember the most as a child because it's the only movie I went to where we showed up too late. Apparently, the newspaper had printed the wrong time, starting time. And my uncle, Bill took us to these movies all the time. He took us to see Superman, Star Wars, and Empire Strikes Back. And we went to Raiders of the Lost Ark at a theater here in Oklahoma City that no longer exists. The building does, but the theater doesn't, called the Will Rogers Theater. We showed up a little too late. We came in on the scene where Marion is drinking everyone under the table. And so we started the movie from there. And when it was over, just sat through the 30 minutes or whatever before the next one started. We saw the beginning up until that scene, and then we left. And that's, I mean, that's how people used to see movies decades and decades before, is my understanding, until Alfred Hitchcock and Psycho came about, and they instituted some policy that changed all that. But it's a weird way to see a movie. And yet, at that, that age, I just 
you know, it would drive me crazy now, but as a 10 year old, it didn't, it didn't matter too much to me. I was, I was instantly hooked. Uh, I knew exactly, you know, it's, it's like you didn't, you didn't need, uh, to have seen that beginning to appreciate what came after. Although that beginning is awesome. <laughs> it, it was weird seeing it at the, essentially the end of our movie going experience, but it's still a fantastic movie. And yeah, absolutely. I had the Indiana Jones poster on my wall after that. And uh, I looked forward to Temple of Doom or whatever it was called it, but it originally. Did you like Temple of Doom when it was out? I love Temple of Doom and I love it today. I'm one of those people who actually, I would pick watching Temple of Doom over the original Raiders. Uh, wow. Any day of the week. I am, I adore that movie. And, you know, it, it may just be because it doesn't have to do any of the character setup like the first film does. It just starts and goes. And it's in that way, it's sort of true to the spirit of the pulps and the serials and all the things that influenced it. But, yeah, I, I adore Temple of Doom. In fact, I remember, well, you remember certainly that that was one of the movies that caused the PG-13 rating to come into play. People were so up in arms over the violence and the monkey brains and uh, the pulling out of the heart, the slave children, all those things. Our local newspaper, the Daily Oklahoman, which is considered one of the worst newspapers in the nation, actually Columbia Journalism Review in the 90s called it the worst newspaper in the nation, they ran either an editorial or an actual film review of Temple of Doom that just slaughtered it because of the violence said, you know, kids should not be watching this and here's the reasons. And I remember being really pissed off because two of the reasons were actually incorrect. One of them said that at the end of the film, Indy whips Kate Capshaw's character around the neck. And I remember reading that and thinking, no, it's around her waist. And I don't remember what the other error was, but I was so angry that, I wrote a letter to the editor and sent it in. And my mom was so afraid that people would get pissed that I wrote this, that she made me put my initials on it instead of my full name. And my younger brother wanted to be in on this letter, even though he didn't write it. So I had to put his initials on there too, which kind of pissed me off further, but it actually ran. It's probably the only time in the history of the newspaper that someone wrote a letter assigned with initials that actually got printed. But yeah, I'll defend Temple of Doom just like I did against that newspaper. I'll defend Temple of Doom to my dying day. I, I love it. But I, I love Raiders of the Lost Ark too. I just love Temple of Doom a little bit more. It's funny, I was just reading or listening to Movie Freak by Owen Gleiberman, which I know we'll, we'll talk about uh, for another episode at some point in this evening. It was hilarious to read or hear that he didn't like the movie at all and that it was kind of indicative to him that Raiders of the Lost Ark is just action scenes with no breathers in between. And I was just like, as soon as he says it, I'm just thinking of Sala and his family sitting mm -hmm. around, you know, and I'm like, well, what about that? And what about, yeah, what about the scene on the boat, you know, with them, her kissing them and all this stuff. And I'm just thinking of all these other things. It's just like, no, there's some great action set pieces and there are a lot of them, but luckily I think it does give you 
ample time to breathe, though it takes a long time sometimes to breathe. You know, there there are moments, but you know, I mean, that whole thing setting up what the Ark of the Covenant is at the beginning. I mean, that's great, great dialogue, and that comes after the whole jungle chase. So I think you really have some great beats in there between the action and when the next set piece begins. Two things to that. One, what's wrong with an action film that is propulsive? Although, yeah, I totally agree with you. And two, remember, Owen Lieberman was probably on cocaine at that period. (laughs) He may be misremembering the film. And he'd be the first person to tell you that, too. Yeah, probably. (laughs) Though he's still defending it or or condemning it. Yeah, that's one of those things that... But we all have them. We all have movies that that we don't like that everyone else does and vice versa. So we all have them. That's just his. Yeah, I mean, that's me and The Last Crusade. I mean, people have, you know, asked me politely to leave parties when I say that I don't like The Last Crusade. <laughs> I, I enjoy The Last Crusade. I don't love it like the other two. And I enjoy Crystal Skull, even though most of America hates it. That's fine. It has definite flaws, but I still enjoy it. With Last Crusade, there's two things that kind of bother me the most. One is, I love Marcus from Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I love that he is kind of like, you know, uh, Indiana Jones' right-hand man when it comes to those early scenes. And there's even that line about, like, if I was five years younger, I'd go myself to look for you know, Ab- Abner Ravenswood and the the headpiece for the Staff of Ra and everything. And I was like, yeah, yeah, he would. He, he's that kind of a guy. And then in Last Crusade, he turns into this total bumbling idiot. And I was just like, <laughs> who is this guy? He and Sala. Like, Sala is a great character, too. And they both tur- they turn into Abbott and Costello, or they turn into uh, Costello and Costello. It's just like, w- what is going on here? These two guys, they were great in that first film, and now they're just comic relief. They do everything that the Costello breathing, laughing that he does. That <laughs> Yes. <laughs> The guy in the gorilla suit that comes out you know, with, the, with the swastika on and stuff. It's like, yeah, and they're just pointing. And then finally they spray ink in his face. And it's like, oh, okay, good. Yeah, it, The pen it, is mightier than the sword. It's, that's pretty good. I do think that the opening with River Phoenix was, I, I love that opening. And that made me want to see like a young Indiana Jones movie. Although I had no interest in the TV show. I never watched it. Um, and Allison Duty, man, for such a terrible last name, she was pretty hot. I just didn't like how quick it was when it came to that River Phoenix part, because I thought he was tremendous. But I would have liked to have seen that as a whole film, because it was just like, oh, there's the hat. Oh, there's the scar. Oh, there's the snakes. Oh, mm-hmm. there's the the whip. And it was just like, come on, guys. Give me. Speaking of breathing room, give me a little <laughs> bit of breathing room between these things, you know? It's just like, wow, it took an afternoon to make Indiana Jones the man he became later on. <laughs> Good point. Yeah, I mean, I thought that he was amazing as that. And I I actually liked the chemistry between Harrison Ford and, and uh, Sean Connery. So those scenes I was cool with and everything. But yeah, just those two things. The quickness of the early stuff and then the, the way that they treated Marcus and Sala. I was just like, ah, gosh. So it's not one that I go back to very often. I actually go back to Temple of Doom more often than I go back to Last Crusade. Same here. And 
Uh, Crystal Skull is the only one that I've seen once. I've been, I've been meaning to rewatch it since it hit DVD, but I haven't yet. But, you know, I, I don't exactly say I look forward to watching it again, but I, <laughs> I do intend to. I had a very interesting one with that one because I had been reading scripts for rejected versions right. of the right. Jones movie like for years. And so when I went to see it, I went to see it with my wife, and I walked out and I was just like, wow, that could have been so much worse. <laughs> there could have been you know, monkeys that eat magical peaches and they're immortal. You know, like the, all these horrible ideas that had just been, you know, throughout the scripts of or for all these years. And my wife's just like, what a piece of garbage. And I was just like, but it could have been so much worse. You don't understand. <laughs> Do you remember back in the mid 80s, you know, when Spielberg was at his height and you would go to the grocery store and they would have sort of like movie souvenir magazines, kind of. Mm -hmm. They would have the official ones, but they would also have like knockoffs. And I want to say they were probably like James Warren publications or whatever, but there was one right after Temple of Doom hit theaters, and it may have just been called Indie 3. And Ah. it was a whole magazine devoted to what the next one was going to be like. And I remember the cover... I wish I could remember the name of the film it said it was going to be, but, you know, it said co-starring Tanya Roberts. <laughs> and I want to say that the actual illustration was Harrison Ford with Tanya Roberts in character. Wow. Short Round was back, I believe. I don't know. I was obsessed at that point with Indiana Jones, but I, I didn't have the allowance to buy it. What I wouldn't give to have that today. It's probably out there somewhere on the Internet. Oh, yeah. You should be checking eBay right now. <laughs> My mortgage doesn't allow me to get it today. There was the big controversy with Temple of Doom about the violence. There was also all of these news stories about what a prequel was. Nobody knew yes. what a prequel was. And it was just like people's minds were blown that it was out of continuity, that it was it was a sequel but af- but, but before the first one. God, people were just losing their shit about that. The only problem I had with the prequel idea was that, you know, he didn't end up with Kate Capshaw, who I was in love with. I thought she was absolutely gorgeous. And that short round, he ditched him at some point. (laughs) Because neither of those characters were in Raiders, obviously, or I think even mentioned or hinted about or anything. So that was that was my only problem with the prequel was knowing that this happy ending wasn't really happy because they both weren't around later. I really want to know why it wasn't a sequel. Like, were there things happening in India or you know Japan or China wherever the the film starts that just didn't play into the timeline of the Nazis and the World War II? I mean, it just uh, it seems so arbitrary that it had to take place before the events of the first film. Mike, consider the producer starting Star oh. Wars on Episode Four. It doesn't matter. Right. I guess. I don't. That's my theory. He's, he's very much like Godard in that way, I suppose. <laughs> exactly. Now, you read the book about Raiders, because before it was a documentary about this fan film it was a book about this fan film it was and i want to say it came out two years ago maybe or maybe just last Mm -hmm. year it's fairly recently 
But when it came out, uh, it was sent to me for review, and I basically only read books about movies nowadays, so I devoured it uh, and ended up not liking it, really. Uh, it, let's see. It came out 2012, it looks like, so it's been a few years. But it's written by Alan Eisenstock, who was interviewed briefly in the documentary. And it is essentially what the documentary is, except with the, the hook of the the new. And it's just not good. The way he has to fictionalize it to, not really fictionalize, but to make it a narrative, because he's telling it as if it were a novel in a way. Because Oh, really? It's, it's not written like a non like your standard nonfiction story. It's written almost like a novel so that each chapter ends in a, not a cliffhanger exactly, but a, just a, with dialogue like, now that's what I'm talking about. Or, you know, you ain't seen nothing yet. Or <laughs> a, like a narrative line, like if they only knew what was next. Those kind of things that intend to keep turning the pages. They didn't do that for me. They had the opposite effect where I was like, oh my gosh, that's terrible. Now let me see how the how much worse it can get. <laughs> it's not really a terrible book. It's just not good. I obviously read it. I just didn't really appreciate it. Although it did make me want to see the fan film. And even though I don't think... No, I think there was news of the documentary coming out, and it definitely made me want to see the documentary. I knew that would be better, and it certainly is. It's one thing to read about these guys and what they did, but you really have to see it to appreciate it for what it is. Was the book told in a linear fashion, can you remember? I believe it was, yes. Okay. It's been, you know, this was back in the days where I was reading like a book a day, so I don't remember all the details, but I do believe that it was written starting with the, I don't know, like maybe even the kids seeing Raiders for the first time. But yeah, it was written uh, chronological. And little did Eric know that day when he left the theater, (laughs) what an impact that film would have on the rest of his life. Now that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, the documentary definitely holds my interest. I've, I've watched it a couple times now, and it actually seems to get even better, I guess, because I kind of know what's going to happen now after seeing it the first time. And I I appreciate that they really know, speaking of beats and and action and everything, they definitely know how to move the story along, it feels, and there don't seem to be any dead parts to it. Absolutely. I liked it a lot better a second time. The first time I kept pausing and going to do other things like iron a shirt and stuff like that. So it really wasn't holding my attention all that well. But the second time I was able to watch it straight through and, and got into it for those very reasons that you mentioned is you do know what's going to happen. And uh, I found myself looking forward to several scenes, one in particular toward the end. I don't, I don't want to spoil it, but it's uh, during the making of the airplane scene and the thing that happens, the unexpected thing that happens, and I laughed. <laughs> I, I must have no soul, but I, I laughed, and I had to rewind it and watch it again. I laughed again, <laughs> and I called my son into the room, and I'm like, you got to watch this, and he laughed, and I feel bad, but yeah. <laughs>
That's the one. That's the piece I look forward to the most. <laughs> it was kind of like the Darwin Awards. <laughs> Andy does this like gymnastics routine, sort of not even realizing it. Yeah, I don't want to spoil it, but you'll know it when you see it. I have to say, it takes a lot for me to actually like and recommend a movie where you have not only Eli Roth in it as a talking head, <laughs> but Harry Knowles as well. Oh, Harry Knowles, totally. I He may be the nicest guy, although friends of mine in Austin have stories that suggest otherwise, but it just bugs me that he is the face and voice of, you know, movie people today and he's yes. not a writer that's that's the thing that really bugs me is that he's <laughs> not a writer you don't call those lengthy screeds where it takes you seven or eight paragraphs to get down to the actual possibly interesting thing you don't call that writing with all caps and me want pleasance and oh yeah who went, who got what at the concession stand? No, I don't consider that writing. As a, as a journalism professor of mine once said, that's not writing. That's typewriter masturbation. I have a friend, Scott Kalanico, who was from Austin, and he used to call Harry the empresario of the exclamation point. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's pretty good. I don't have as much problem with either Roth, although he does do that Tarantino thing where he's so enthusiastic about everything but because he actually does have a place in the story of the film yeah Knowles definitely I could do and hope to do without seeing him in documentaries ever again yeah the fewer quotes I read the anything that points back to that website anything is just <laughs> yes yeah I mean I've, I've been done with that since the late 90s. Not that I ever really was a ardent reader, but it was kind of the place for, hey, here's the new Star Wars trailer. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, okay. That was about it, because I really couldn't stand the pseudonyms and just the, we're, we're going behind the scenes, all this kind of stuff. And then really what got me was the uh, the hypocrisy when one of the writers went on an absolute terror about the Wolverine X-Men origins (laughs) film coming out, you know, like illegally. And Ain't It Cool News was like, oh my God, this is terrible. And I was like, this is the exact same shit you guys would have done. Mm -hmm. (laughs) No, exactly. Or you would have just lorded it over us that you saw a copy of it. Exactly. And how awesome it was. Oh my God. Yeah. I guess we're getting off track here, but I remember what really did me in was the year that they, claimed they had the winners of the Oscars. Remember how they printed the list of the winners? And I don't even remember what year that was, but they were way off base. But I think that was a, a part where, in time where I was like, I can do without this site. <laughs> there are a couple of things in the documentary, though, that I really make me mad at the, at the subjects themselves. One is really more of an annoyance, and that's at the beginning where they are meeting with this potential investor and he's like why would I want to give you money when I'm not ever going to see this back because you can't release a remake of Raiders of the Lost Ark you don't have the rights you don't own it this will never be able you know to be seen commercially what why would I give you my money and they're just like because it's a childhood dream duh 
they don't say that in those exact words, but it's that's the whole thing because it's 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 the childhood dream, and you know there's a reason childhood dreams are childhood. Uh, I I don't see why they couldn't have finished the movie with using you know model plane, like actually one of the people suggest <laughs> later in the documentary. I don't see why they had to go all out as they do. The second thing that really actually did make me mad is when Eric should basically puts his job on the line for this shoot of this one scene. And he's, yeah. he is, uh, I guess I, I wish to, I wish there were more to that that we could have seen, but he, the point where he's calling his employer basically begging for two more days, just two more days, just two more days. And the employer is pissed off. Like I have given you all I can give, you know, you, you keep asking for more and more and more. And you know, the guy's like, I'll have to think about it. And Eric seems pissed that the guy just didn't say, Oh yeah, I know you're chasing your childhood dream. You can have two extra days off. Sure. No problem. But he, yeah, he he literally puts his job on the line. And even though it, it may be a job he hated, and I guess it was, but that is just, you know, he's got a wife, he's got kids. That just seems incredibly arrogant to me to do that sort of thing. Speaking from the perspective of an Oklahoman where the oil and gas industry is tanked and there are so many people out of work where people would kill to have a job. And he's just sort of, completely nonchalant about the deal. Yeah, I have to say being unemployed is one of my greatest fears. Mm -hmm. So that whole thing, I was just like, oh my God, you're really risking everything for this? Exactly. And it made me feel bad where I was just like, but that's his art, man. That's his <laughs> art. Well, it's actually George and Steven's art, but <laughs> yeah, I get what you're saying. <laughs> that goes back to what I said earlier, where if they were making their own movie it would be a little different i still don't think he's put his job on the line but you know i i, I could at least see the, the emotional investment there as much as as he had in this it's funny i have a friend or, or kind of a ex-friend who he and his his pals from high school they would make short movies and he kind of like lived with those for a long time like he would do like remaster kind of stuff like you know as soon as like video on the internet was available he's like digitizing these videos and all this kind of stuff and just like kind of like not letting go of the past but they were short films and he knew that they were just short films that very few people would see and like he kind of was also making a joke out of it a little bit like you know like like doing the uh, you know the Redux versions of these things and just you know kind of poking fun at George Lucas as well by like you know doing the uh, like redoing some special effects and this kind of stuff, but yeah he knew to let go and he never like you know put his job on the line and and yeah those scenes were just terrible because unfortunately I really empathized with the boss absolutely like, yes if I had an employee or if I had a coworker who was doing this stuff I'd be like dude, I don't care. You need to do your shit. Like if I'm counting on you for something like, you know, Hey, I sent you that list of URLs two days ago. You got to prioritize this shit. You know, those kind of things. And I have been there many a time where you are taking on 
the responsibility of that coworker who, you know, it's like, oh, I'm going to be gone in Hawaii for a week. I'm telling you now on a Friday when I won't be in Monday and you're going right. to do all this stuff for me. <laughs> but I've, you know, I've not been on, on the boss's side per se, but those were some of the most uncomfortable things to watch. Yeah. My anger was legitimate and <laughs> it was direct toward Eric, not the boss. Even though I, I, I have a feeling that the filmmakers want you to think the other way. Yeah, I think we're supposed to think that the boss is a dick. Right. Uh, yeah. And I don't, I don't agree with that. I don't see that no. at all. Even if it was a soul-sucking job. <laughs> Didn't his wife make some comment toward the beginning about hoping they don't lose everything or you know keep the kids fed? She makes some kind of comment about that. Gotta follow his dream, Rod. I guess those two kids don't eat much. Yeah, and to your point, I mean, Jason Lamb, the special effects expert, <laughs> definitely is saying that they should be using miniatures, or even when it came to the plane, like, they're building the plane almost like it was a real damn plane, like, you know, almost, almost runway-ready kind of thing. And it was like, come on, guys, just, you know, plywood and, or maybe, like, balsa wood or something. You don't need to go to the extent... That goes against the whole idea of everything that came before, because it was just, let's make what we can with what we have. And this is a Kickstarter. It was a literal Kickstarter, right? To right. finish this thing. And that, yeah, it's like, they don't need that. It's, it's taking it. It's taking that scene. Uh, it's putting it on another level entirely from all the footage that they shot before. Cause I right. like hearing about, the five different boulders they had gone through before they finally found one that they, that they liked that worked correctly. And you know, it was, it, it didn't cost thousands of dollars. Whereas this plane, you know, they're hiring people to build it and, and an entire crew, which also like the idea better that it was just a couple of kids and not trying to mount something that's quote unquote professional. And especially with what happens with that one guy, I mean, man, that would have put a real damper on the entire project if that had turned out differently. Yeah, I can't even imagine. I mean, because I, I watched the fan film today and I was just like, I didn't even really notice that that wasn't in there. I don't know if it's just that I'm so familiar with how the Raiders story goes, but my mind really connected fairly well between mm -hmm. you know being trapped in the well of the souls and then having the arc on a truck. You know, you really didn't necessarily need that particular thing. You know, Absolutely. Just off the, you went. That's one thing the documentary does really well is showing how, I don't want to say stupid, but their dealings with fire and moving vehicles, <laughs> they, were, they were dangerous kids. I mean, that's what yes. kids do. They do stupid things like that. But, the scene with the adult supervision and the guys like more fire, more fire, throw some gas over there, gas over there. <laughs> that was hysterical. Yes. Yeah. And especially when you cut to him and he's like pointing at his beer can and stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's one of my favorite sequences in the film, in the documentary. I mean, that does get confusing. Yeah, I know. I tripped up a few times at the beginning, so hopefully people understand if I was saying the documentary or the fam film. I'll try my best to clean that up via yeah. editing. We'll, we'll see what happens there. Which of the three Raiders are we talking about? We do know that 
their original version isn't necessarily what we were seeing, even when it comes to the the accepted version of the fan film that we see today, because of that whole thing where they were recording and they had a, a character up on screen the whole time, the letter A up yeah. on screen. <laughs> <laughs> that was hysterical. I can't imagine when they found that out and figured out that it happened. It's kind of funny, too, because you see a lot of those scenes in the documentary, and there's no mention made of it at first. It's not until later that they explain that, but that that is one of the funnier moments. All right, we're going to take a break and play an interview with directors Jeremy Kuhn and Tim Skousen. Guys, I've been fans of your work for a long time. Oh, well, it's great to hear. I was uh, at Slam Dance the year that the Sasquatch Dumpling Gang played. Wow, and you oh. used the proper title. I love it. <laughs> yeah, very old school. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. You had to retitle it or something? Can't was, tell if they were afraid of Disney or if yeah, they it was the Apple Dumpling. good yeah. titles. <laughs> yeah, it was because of the Apple Dumpling Gang. They were like marginally scared that there was like a slim chance that they might get sued. But <laughs> yeah. When did you guys first start working together? Somewhere in film school. Log jamming. <laughs> yeah. Jeremy did a film in, in film school called Log Jamming. So. <laughs> I stopped by to help out on, and we became quick friends. Yeah, so that's like 2000. <laughs> Were you both involved in Palooka, or was it just one of you guys? Uh, Tim, did you work on I mean, I was the producer and editor. I didn't. Yeah, yeah I, I didn't. I had just left school and was trying to make this digital feature uh, when he went and made Palooka. I used to do all of jared's editing and then jeremy took over for him um after i left school but you both worked on napoleon dynamite right correct correct when were you guys first exposed to the raiders fan film this is jeremy yeah so i had heard about it kind of like rumors about it but i never thought it really existed and it was just at like a kid's film festival up where we live in utah i just went and checked it out not having high expectations and just fell in love with it on a saturday afternoon and luckily chris trompolis who plays indiana jones was there yeah, I just talked to Xerox, and I'm like, man, you've got to do more with this. And when did you decide to do a documentary about it? For me, I was, it was literally like 15 minutes into seeing the movie. I turned to my friend that you know, I was with, and I'm, I was like, holy crap, like someone, like, why do I not know more about this? Why is this story? Like, I just had all these questions, because as you're watching, you're like, where are these kids' parents? Like, who died? How are they going to do this? <laughs> I just couldn't wait for the Q&A to come. And I'm like, if, if I got that, I don't get excited about a whole lot of stuff. I'm pretty even keel, and like, I felt like, you know, this, there's got to be more here. And then Alan Isaac's book uh, had just come out. So I read it like the night before I had dinner with Chris the next night. And that's pretty much, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's how I heard about it as well. Sister Jeremy. And then when I saw it, I was just blown away with how charming the film is. Like how much you, you really are like rooting for the kids. You're just like, how are they going to do this? How are they going to do that? I mean, they picked the perfect movie to do because it's like that film that everyone knows, at least people of a certain age, like, you know, Every moment of that film, every smirk, every line, like every big set piece. And so it was really cool to watch the film and be like, how are they going to do this and that? So it was it was a pretty fun, charming film. So how do you guys approach the subjects for making the documentary? I went up to Chris afterwards. He was autographing books. So I bought a book. I had a mod- There's only there's probably maybe like 25, 30 people at the screen. It was like a Saturday afternoon, three. I was like, hey. Love your work. I produced Napoleon Dynamite, and I think you guys should do a documentary or do something more with this. You know, how long are you in town? And he took the bait on that. So the funny story was, uh, I tend to know about this in another interview, but uh, 
some of the process found out that Eric necessarily wasn't the biggest fan of Napoleon Dynamite. And That's hilarious. Uh, yeah, so I used it. So he's, Eric's like, I mean, uh, Chris was like, "That's you know, we're interested. Don't use the, the I would mention Napoleon. I know you did it, but like, that doesn't help your case with Eric. <laughs> <laughs> That blows my mind, man. That is hilarious. I got to say, that's one of the most divisive films ever. Yeah. Yeah, it really. To this day, Eric and I have never spoken about it. So, I mean, this is just through Chris. I never brought it up. So, So he took the bait when it came to being a willing participant. Yeah, I mean, they've been approached, I don't know how many times over like the previous decade to do a doc, and it just never really felt right. And I just kind of came up with a game plan. It's like, look, this is what we want to do. And I just kind of laid some groundwork, and they liked the pitch, you know, and felt that we could actually, you know, Tim and I could get over the finish line. Well, it's interesting because you start the movie with a pitch, and you and you help get <laughs> their movie, or they finally get their movie over the finish line. Where was that whole idea of doing that final scene? Because you really kind of that's the the framework for the film. Was that just lucky happenstance, or did you help kind of move that process along? Right after they made the film back in the 80s, they regretted not doing that scene and like figuring out a way to do it, although it was the most difficult scene. And so right off the bat, they were sort of would have nightmares and regrets and stuff like that. And then it just became one of those things where they were never going to do it. They're never going to do it. And 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 um, Eric had sort of put it out of his mind. But it was always sort of nagging him. And so when they finally decided, like, let's do this documentary, I think that was the thing that kind of put him over the edge because Chris wanted to do it. And so Chris was kind of using the documentary as like, hey, maybe we should do this as well. And Eric really thought about it. I mean, he took a long time to figure out. Jeremy, how long was it? Like a month or two before he made the decision? I mean, our thing was kind of like, hey, like whatever you guys want to do, we're happy to do it. You know, we have to be supportive. And yeah, I say it was, I say it was like a month or six weeks. And then because Eric was like, Chris, you do realize it's going to be like a year to do this. This isn't like easy. And Chris is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, I totally get it. It's just, that's just the way they are. Cool thing about both. And once like, you know, Eric said, yes, like they're both in it full force. Like, like they would stop at nothing to get that finished. But the funny thing is that's exactly how it was in the eighties. Like Chris came up with the idea. Eric was like, this could be a lot of work. He's like, yeah, 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 yeah. No big deal. You know? And to be honest, like without Eric being involved, the film never would have been finished. I mean, I don't think it would have gotten past the first summer but Eric's the type of guy, when he says yes to something, he takes it all the way. And Chris, you know, halfway through the process, or maybe two-thirds of the way through the process of making the original Raiders adaptation, he was done. Like, he was like, I don't want to do this anymore. But Eric was like, we got to finish. And so Eric just has this insane drive. And, and to be honest, with the, with the airplane scene, like, Chris worked just as hard. I mean, Chris really, but it was always that same sort of dynamic where Chris was like, hey, let's do it. It'll be fun, <laughs> you know? And Eric's the one that, like, you know, really realizes how much work it's going to be. And kudos to them. I mean, spending seven, eight years to, to finish a project like that is unbelievable for teenagers. And what was their relationship like when you guys first kind of came to the party? Because it seems like there were some tumultuous times. Had they had their moment in the sun? Had they done all the talk shows and stuff by the time you're seeing this? Or had, had that yet to happen? We started talking to them. It was, like, March 13. So, like... Their story popped in like oh three oh four and kind of kind of had its runs. This was like the book had come out in like the previous November. Yeah, so I mean they they they'd had like you know seven eight years to kind of at least to kind of sit with it since things kind of died down a little bit. But they, they were constantly touring and doing 
charity screenings around the country during all that time. Yeah, the friendship was pretty, like, they were on good terms at that point. When they first got together for the first time in maybe nine, ten years, they were really nervous. Like, they didn't know what it would be like because they, they really hadn't spoken since, uh, I don't know, Jeremy, like 96 or something like that. I mean, it seems like that was the timeline where they yeah. sort of went their separate ways and Eric got a job and went to Florida and Chris sort of, like, went into, like, crazy town for a couple of years and then sort of recovered and, and he also got into a band and then got married. And so they hadn't seen each other for ages and suddenly like they're getting phone calls from Eli Roth saying, Hey, you don't know me, but I'm this filmmaker and I saw your Raiders film and it's become this big deal. And we want to do like a premiere screening. And they were like, what, you know, and they, and they didn't really like end their friendship on good terms. I mean, that's why they weren't friends anymore. They kind of, I've had it with you and I've had it with you and they both sort of went their separate ways. So when they got together in Tim League's kitchen years later, it was like a really tense moment. Like they didn't know what to expect. And within a few minutes, like the gang was back together and Jason Lamb was there as well. I mean, it was like this thing where they just kind of like came in and it's like, Eric was like, Oh my gosh, there's, there's Chris and Chris was like, Oh my gosh, there's Eric. And like, they both hadn't seen Jason. And they just kind of smiled and like everything was all good. And then like that night they had that amazing screening at that, at the draft house there in Austin. And just like that really cemented, Hey, through all the problems that we ran into more recently, like we did something really special as kids and like they remain friends to this day, which is kind of awesome that like when like 11 year olds are still friends in their forties, that's kind of a cool thing. Obviously, the the shooting of a documentary and and the tracking down of the people, the interviewing and all that, that's such a huge part of making the film. But I have to say that what really shines for me in the film is the editing and the way that you go back and forth between what happened in the past, what happened after they kind of had their falling out where they went from there and then balancing it all with this airplane scene. Fantastic job of moving these timelines along with, you know, all of these separate stories, but having them all converge at the same time was fantastic. Well, thank you. That's awesome. <laughs> Tim did an awesome job. We had 350 hours of footage, which is like, like ridiculous between archival stuff and everything. Tim did an awesome job getting, I think basically kind of the core of the film done, but we had so much footage that we brought on Barry Polterman, uh, who really took it to that next level. Uh, he did American movie, which is my favorite documentary of all time. Once I knew that was his credit, I was like, done. I don't, I don't need to talk to you anymore. You seem normal. I like you. Like we'd love to have you. <laughs> Barry works a miracle, man. We didn't think we were going to use John Reese Davies in the film because turns out that he didn't know much about the kids in the store. We had like 45 minutes with him and, and he gave this amazing interview, but only like five minutes of it was about the kids. Like he was aware that there were kids that in the eighties made this movie and that it was cool. Like that, that was sort of, sort of the extent of his knowledge. And Barry went through that interview and he found all these like random things. And we just started talking about all kinds of stuff. Like what was it like to drag? What was it like to be, you know, and Barry went through and turned him into this like pseudo narrator. And we just love him for that because that, that was really, really nifty. And he kept the, the story going really well. Yeah, that was terrific. Especially his, his thing about to make God laugh, tell him you have a plan. That's such right. a wonderful part of the documentary. Yeah. And also him filling his gelato. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We took out, he, he shared another story where he was like in his bed, which, and I'll quote him verbatim here. He says, uh, a bed into which I've both vomited and excreted. <laughs> so I guess he just had like the worst time ever 
and the doctor came in and he thought like the doctor was coming in to like, you know, help him. And the doctor instead came in and was like, John, where's your bathroom? Oh no, you've got it too. And then the doctor went into his bathroom and just started throwing up and he was like, Oh my gosh, we're doomed. And then that story ended with him saying, you know, I lost 22 pounds in two days. So it just sounded like his time in Tunisia or wherever they were was just, just the worst. Um, Anyways, but we couldn't we couldn't have too many stories of him pooping himself in the dock. What were some some of your biggest challenges when it came to this? Just I think the immensity of the story. I mean, there's so many. I mean, you're talking about storyline, technically, like what 35 years now. Just finding a way to kind of tie that in with the modern day, go the story, and then just going through all this footage because I mean the cool thing. So the best part of the film, my, my favorite part is, so we have everything the kids shot over the entire time, you know, in the 80s. So it's like 35, 40 hours of just raw tape, of just raw footage. And that's like where all those golden moments are. Yeah, and they would shoot in between the takes. Like, they didn't just do takes. Like, I guess Jason, uh, he didn't even like Raiders Lost Ark. <laughs> Thought what they were doing was stupid. And um, so, in be- so, like, what interested him was doing the special effects and the camera work. And so in between takes, like, he would just turn the camera and be like, hey, what do you think about this? Hey, what do you think about that? And, like, so we ended up with all these like semi-documentary moments from the 80s. And there's like, I think they had like 40 tapes or maybe 38 tapes. And there's like six of them that are gone. They couldn't find. And they're like treasure troves. Like there are things missing. You know, it would be like, oh, what was it like whenever Marion had like the first kiss? Well, they had that tape so we could see that stuff. But it was like, well, what about when Marion like is like changing around the corner? Like what were these little like, 13 year old boys thinking about this girl, like taking her shirt off in the next room, you know, that tape was gone, you know? So like, there was like treasure, like total treasures that, that were lost when these tapes were lost because, you know, they didn't think anything would ever happen with this stuff. And we're lucky that they, that they had like the, like the 28 tapes. I think that uh, I can't remember how many tapes there were, but the ones that they did have were just like a treasure trove of just amazing moments of like nostalgic stuff from the eighties. I mean, kids skateboarding and like, them goofing off and like jumping off of like the do- into the into the river from the dock and just all kinds of stuff that you remember from your youth, you know, it's captured on these on these VHS tapes and beta tapes. So um, that stuff was totally amazing. It's funny as I'm watching the documentary, the question that kept going through my head was, you can get boys to do this and to be obsessive about this stuff and to spend every summer working on this but how are you going to get a girl to do that same thing and it was right around the time that i'm thinking that that you guys introduced the marion so i was like okay good there was so much drama around her because she also like uh, she's really interesting and had a little thing going with with um chris like they became boyfriend and girlfriend during the course of this but only kind of. And Chris, this isn't like super apparent in the documentary, um, but it's kind of in there. Like Chris was only there during the summers because he started going to boarding school because his mom married this like really wealthy guy. And he was like, okay, you're not going to to high school in Mississippi anymore. You're going to go to like New England. And so things became like, there ended up being friction with Angela. And, and right up till like Angela was going to come and one of her favorite things about the film is that her hair changes wildly during the course of the film. So like sometimes she has long hair, sometimes it's like blonde and short. And she's like, we got to continue that tradition. And so she keeps telling Eric, like, I'll only come if you let me dye my hair blonde. 
And he's like, no, no, you can't dye your hair blonde. And she's like, well, then I'm not coming. And so there was all this stuff. She was claiming she wasn't going to come or that if she did come, she'd be wearing a wig. So we thought like the doc would have this like really great drama around her. But then she showed up and was quite pleasant and like everything went really smoothly. So we were like, oh, so we, her, her role became basically like the stuff of her when she was a kid. But before that, it, we, it really seemed like that was going to be quite an interesting storyline. But that's the way all documentary is. Like you think something's going to be really interesting and then it doesn't end up being that interesting. But the thing you didn't think was interesting ends up being like a huge story. And that's the documentary, you know? What was that for you guys when it came to what wasn't interesting and then ends up being the big story? Uh, I don't know if it's so much interesting. It's just, I mean, the it's uh, unexpected. I mean, that was out of nowhere. And it, I mean, that definitely impacted the, the film, the story. <laughs> what are you working on currently? We have a couple of other docs for working out there. Like, uh, very, very early. And then, yeah, Tim's working on a script that actually Eric and uh, Chris are also involved. He wants to talk about it. Yeah, I'm writing like a post-apocalyptic um, story set in and around Detroit right now. I actually just invited Eric and Chris to be producers on it through the Rolling Boulder films, mainly because I saw how hard they worked on the airplane scene. And, you know, the the film that I'm that I'm writing right now can be done relatively cheaply with people that are like, you know, like passionate and let's do this, you know? Uh, and, and so we're going to collaborate on this film. The script is about half done. Um, while they're doing their bus tour, they're going to check out a couple of locations like in the Detroit area. So uh, we're kind of combining jobs. And then when the bus tour is over for them, we're kind of like full tilt, like once the script's done, we'll decide like when we shoot it, stuff like that. But um that'll be like a good transition project. Ultimately they want to do their own films, which I'm all for. And they have a couple of projects in the hopper and I'm hoping that, you know, having an experience on a film that's not Raiders, you know, along the way uh, for them getting like one of their own films done would be a good experience for them. So, um, so I'm excited and, um, and hoping that it, that it all works out. Well, Hey, when you are in Detroit, look me up, I'll buy you a beer. Oh man, for sure. Oh man, well let's let's uh, let's text on Facebook or something like that after this. I I'll have some questions for you. Not you know I'm not trying to say that your city looks post-apocalyptic, but certainly there are certain places like that. It's ready-made for it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And half the film happens in the woods, and half of it happens sort of like in the city. And so my worry is like uh, you know they're going to get it all together and like clean everything up before we get a chance to shoot. So which I I'm sure they're doing some of that stuff, but it's a pretty big project. So. Well, guys, thank you so much for your time tonight. I really appreciate this. No problem. No problem. Thank you as well. And we we're talking about Raiders, the greatest. I had to say it with the exclamation mark in there. Raiders, the story of the greatest fan film ever made. Had you ever encountered the whole thing about the making of Raiders of the Lost Ark? Talking about the film that Lucas and Spielberg created. Had you gotten involved with reading some of those story conferences before? 
were those at ever in the issues of Cinemart or the book or it's like I feel like I'd seen reference to it somewhere. But up until the research for this episode, no, I had not. I know I have referenced it in the past, but it was more like a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. A long time ago, I had heard that that was how this movie was made, that that Raiders of the Lost Ark was based on a series of story conferences that George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, and Larry Kasdan had together. And I just heard about it for a long time, and then it was... I can't remember how many years ago, but the transcripts of those conferences finally were made available and just kind of proliferated through the internet. That I have written about those um, for the Impossible Funky blog, but I don't know if I ever put that in any of the books or anything. Well, it is fascinating reading on one level just to see how this stuff came together. Another level, just George Lucas's strange little quirks, to put it mildly. Well, strange little quirks, but he's also so just alive with ideas. It was kind of crazy how how many ideas were coming from him. Yes, yeah, he, including pedophile. <laughs> but, uh, it is a lot of fun to read. It's incredibly funny, too, at times when it's supposed to be funny. Uh, I do love when Lawrence Kasdan asks about, you know, do we have a name? And George Lucas says, I do have a name for a hero. And Steven Spielberg says, oh, I hate this, but go on. <laughs> and at the time, it was something like Indiana Smith, which doesn't quite roll off the tongue like Indiana Jones does. But still, the fact that Spielberg hated it, that was funny. Well, I love when Spielberg takes Lucas away from the brink because, I mean, one of my favorite scenes in Raiders of the Lost Ark is the whole map room scene, you know, and that, especially because we got that a little bit earlier when Jones is in that room talking to those two government officials and he draws the staff of Ra and the headpiece up on the blackboard. And I love the way that he just kind of pauses after he draws the sun striking the headpiece and beaming down into the map room. Well, the staff is just a stick. I don't know about this big. Nobody really knows for sure how high it is. It's a cap, an elaborate headpiece in the shape of the sun with a crystal in the center. And what you did was you take the staff to a special room in Tavis, a map room with a miniature of the city all laid out on the floor. And if you put the staff in a certain place at a certain time of day, the sun shone through here and made a beam that came down on the floor here and gave you the exact location of the well of the souls. And he just kind of like, you know, he taps the board a couple times like, if only I could have that staff and that headpiece. You know, I, I want to be the person that finds this. So there's just like this little moment in there that I just absolutely love. And then that whole scene takes place and the, the way that John Williams' score comes up and just, oh, God, and when the, the beam hits that headpiece and burns that, that hole in the map room and everything is so fantastic. And I love that they're talking about this and going and going and going in these story conferences. And then George Lucas is like, well, you know, that really wouldn't work because the Earth has shifted after all these <laughs> years. And, <laughs> and Spielberg's just like, no, 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 George, don't, don't even think about that stuff. You know, come on back from the break, you know. It's like, well, you know, the, the Earth moves in its orbit. You know, it's like, oh, no, no, no. I can, I can almost picture that actually happening, too. 
you can hear George saying that. But yeah, the, let's let's talk about the pedophilia. We might as well talk about. <laughs> yeah. So do you want to? Uh, well, there's kind of a hint to it. Oh, there's more than a hint. Well, there's a there's a that line where she says, "I was a child. I was in love. It was wrong, and you knew it. You knew what you were doing." And you could take that metaphorically, like I was not emotionally developed yet. Right, right. But yeah, definitely reading these story conferences, in the story conferences, they set up this whole relationship between, you know, Indiana Jones and Abner Ravenwood, and that he was Indiana Jones's mentor, and we have this whole like backstory that they're talking about, and basically, Abner was like a father to Indy. Right. And then Marion is a literal daughter to Abner. And those two were kind of getting together, Indy and, and Marion. And uh, yeah, so it was almost like a brother and sister kind of going at it. Something that George Lucas definitely likes to talk about. <laughs> That's, yeah, I didn't even think about that part of it. I was referring to the age difference. Because Lucas says um, Indiana Jones had an affair with her when she was 11. And he was 42 or something like that. <laughs> I was a child. I was in love. It was wrong and you knew it. And then it goes on and then it's like, uh, uh, he was 25 and she was only 12. It would be amusing to make her slightly young at the time. That's the direct quote. It would be amusing. 25 and 12. That's amusing. It's not amusing. It's rape. You knew what you were doing. Yeah, and that's another one where Spielberg really kind of took us back from the brink with that. <laughs> I think he talked him up to like 14, maybe. Mm-hmm. Imagine Roman Polanski's Raiders. That'd be a different thing. Larry Clark's Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> oh, there's one I don't want to see. <laughs> yeah, and the, what was funny to me was what they left out of Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, like they would go through and they just kept throwing out all these ideas. And then, you know, basically they, they took what I consider the best ones and they put them into Raiders of the Lost Ark and they took all the other ones and they put them into Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. There's like the the scene at the nightclub is in there, the airplane thing with the with the raft and everything, that's in there. So it was just funny how, like, and I've talked about this with Lucas before, Lucas will not give up ideas. So like if he comes up with an idea, he's going to use it, you know? It's true. True, as we've seen with the special editions, too. Oh, yeah. Well, I really want to have a volcano planet. Well, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense, but I want it. And they just keep trying to put that into every movie. You know, oh, well, we'll have Revenge of the Jedi end that way. Well, we'll have it in this one. Well, and he finally gets his volcano planet, and it's just like, okay, yeah, this is kind of weird. Wouldn't they burn up when they're on those rocks and stuff going through the lava field? I loved you. If you're interested in the making of Raiders of the Lost Ark, like I remember watching, I, I think it was on PBS when I was uh, a young person and watching this documentary about the making of Raiders. And I remember especially them going through the whole scene of the truck that flips yes. over. Yeah. I've seen that, this. Yeah. That seemed to take a long time. And then the dragging underneath the other truck took a long time. I've seen that. I don't remember what it is called, but I remember watching it on TV. There was a filmmaker out there, uh, Jamie Benning, who puts together these things where he'll take the the entire film of something. So he's done this. I've, I've watched it with... 
I think Star Wars now, Jaws, and Raiders. And he'll take the film, he'll take audio commentary and interviews from all these different years, and he'll put them together and like kind of layer them throughout the entire movie. Then he'll show a scene, and then he'll kind of cut to the behind-the-scenes version of it, and then play that through and so it's it's interesting how he does this it's a uh, he calls them filmumentaries he uh did a really great one with raiders of the lost ark where it uses that footage that i was just talking about so we'll see how the truck scene goes and then we'll cut and it'll be the whole making of bit and then sometimes they'll even layer you know some recordings over that as well and he always cites like you know when these interviews were done and everything and he does a really good job with it the only every every once in a while it feels like he needs to do one more pass because sometimes people will tell the same story multiple times you know because people have their stories about making a movie so you know you like if with jaws you know there's the whole like the the shark is not working kind of thing you know like those kind of stories that we hear every time from richard dreyfus you know and Sometimes he'll leave those in like three and four times. So by the end, you're like, oh, God, are we going to hear the same freaking story again? <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. Oh, really? Oh, the hotel had bad food? Oh, God, really? We have to hear that story again? But for the most part, those are pretty amazing. And the Raiders one, I think he adds about a half an hour worth of footage to it. Gives us some storyboard. It's too tough to read, at least on my TV, but he'll have like pieces of that story conference shown on screen and everything. So he really does a good job of piecing all these bits and pieces together. So it's like taking all the special features and and on DVD and putting them into one thing. It sounds like. Yeah. And it's really nice. He'll, he'll do kind of like what I like to do where you take different pieces of different interviews. And in his case, he's doing a lot of like either interviews or commentaries and I'll just kind of layer them all so that it goes from one, one person to the other, instead of it just all Spielberg throughout or all Harrison Ford throughout. Mm -hmm. I have to say, I was cracking up because of that old documentary we're talking about. Harrison Ford does the voiceover on it and he sounds even more bored than he was as uh, Deckard. And that's saying something. Hitler believes it has magical powers. Jones suspects he may be right. The Ark must never reach Germany. I'm curious, have you ever seen Cleveland Smith, Bounty Hunter? This is the Sam Raimi short film. Yes, I actually saw it before I ever saw any Sam Raimi movie. They're included, or pieces of it, are included on the compilation uh, Filmhouse Fever. Have you ever seen that with Steve Buscemi? Yeah, oh my gosh. Yeah, they have pieces of that and also Raimi's Toro, Toro, Toro parody, Toro, 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 which is a lawnmower. And I remember seeing both those and thinking, because they're in black and white, and they're, I don't think the lawnmower one is, but the Indiana Jones one is in black and white, as I recall. And, uh, I remember seeing them and thinking, oh my gosh, I want to see the entire version of that thing, whatever that thing is, and I want to know who did it. And I don't believe that they're credited at the end of Filmhouse Fever. I mean, it may say the names of the the, the titles of the films, but I don't know that it said directed by Sam Raimi. 
But it wasn't until years later that I ever saw a Raimi film. And <laughs> funny enough, Crime Wave was the first, and then Evil Dead 2, and then Evil Dead. But once I saw Crime Wave, I sort of mentally put it together, like, this guy's style is a lot like that. And once IMDb came to existence, I was able to confirm that, that, yeah, it's the same guy. I do love that, that, that short. It's pretty amazing. Well, it's kind of funny talking about the idea of either making a shot-per-shot remake of Raiders, like these kids did, or this Cleveland Smith bounty hunter, which I think that they were a little older than high school, but I'm trying to place exactly when they would have made this Mm -hmm. because it doesn't seem, I guess, because they made Evil Dead, yeah, they were like in their early 20s, so I'm guessing maybe they were in their late teens when they were making these short films. Mm -hmm. And you have to admit that it's very, very ambitious again, but it, it, it goes outside of what writers was. I mean, there's some ideas and some parody things like the guy in the skeleton makeup and he's doing all this stuff with a sword, but then rather than Cleveland Smith shooting him, they cut back to him and he just falls into little pieces. Like he'd been (laughs) slicing and dicing himself. Right. It's a pretty cool effect, you know, and, and they're doing stop motion stuff with this dinosaur that Cleveland Smith is standing on top of. And yeah, it's it's pretty amazing to see all of the different effects that they are doing and just how ambitious. And it's only like nine minutes long, but it's, it really holds together and really is a, a, a great short film. Speaking of nine minutes, the two guys that did the Raiders doc, they have a 12-minute documentary piece on the Dangerous Men Blu-ray from Draft House Cinema, who actually puts out this Raiders doc, uh, about the, the director of Dangerous Men. And I wish that were an actual full-length documentary like Raiders is, because that is an incredible story in itself. You know, I can't say that. I'm, a f- I'm familiar with that. Uh, seek it out. It just came out, I think, April on, uh, on DVD and Blu-ray. It had a, one of those short Draft House releases theatrically which you probably had to be in a city where they have one. I don't. But it's, yeah, it's an amazing, an amazing bad movie that took something like 20 years for the guy to make. We have a draft house here in Michigan, but it's nowhere near Detroit. It's <laughs> two and a half hours away over in Kalamazoo. Go figure. Sucks to be me. Yeah, well, and even worse, Oklahoma City will probably never get one because our liquor laws are so archaic that uh, they prevent that. Because I, I believe that they were looking into coming here, and that killed it. So, figures. I was just going to add one more thing when it came to the Cleveland Smith thing, which was that I didn't see that until years after seeing a lot of Raimi and Becker and Spiegel stuff, mm-hmm. and bought it as a. It was part of a compilation from Video Search of Miami of Sam Raimi short films. Oh, cool! I didn't know that. Something like that existed. Yeah, it was pretty neat. They had the Toro Toro Toro. They had Cleveland Smith. They had um, the Hamburger Helper Hand one. They had a few others on there, like some very, like, uh, what was it? The the Clumsy Waiter, I think it might have been called. And what was great, though, at the end, they had at least one commercial for, and they might have had a couple commercials for these two bozo morning guys who are on like WNIC here in Detroit. 
And I'm like, why is this on here? And then I noticed that Bruce Campbell's in the background of these commercials. And I'm like, oh, my God, they must have shot these <laughs> commercials. Like they, one of the guys from the morning thing like tells this joke. And Bruce Campbell just overreacts to how funny this joke is. Just gives this amazing, like, throws himself back in hysterical laughter kind of thing. Yeah, I can see him doing that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. I'll have to hunt that down. That sounds funny. Yeah. I have to see if that's out on YouTube or something. But, yeah, uh, Cleveland Smith is out there. And, yeah, another fantastic performance by Bruce Campbell. Absolutely. And uh, Sam Raimi playing a Nazi. So, good stuff. And a lot of guys in blackface and uh, even like a pimp joke. So it's completely inappropriate by today's standards, but it's still really funny. Yeah, Spielberg would say, don't think about that. Well, yeah, they should have gone back and replaced all the guns with walkie-talkies, I think. <laughs> Gosh. So do you have any final thoughts on Raiders? The uh, I can't even say the whole thing. I wonder how many exclamation points would be in the title if Harry Knowles directed it. There's no poster big enough in the world for that plus a Harry Knowles quote on it as well. I would say um, definitely see it. I would see it over the fan film. To tell the truth, I think that you get plenty of the fan film in the documentary that you know if you don't have time to see both, the documentary will hit both notes for you. I think it's... Uh, it, it does tell a great story. I, I can't say that I was as emotionally involved as the filmmakers were, but I still enjoyed watching it. In fact, I'm not emotionally involved in it. It, it didn't matter to me if they finished the scene or not. I just was having a good time watching it. It's definitely a good kind of backbone for the story to have that shooting of the scene. And I think it tells a nice story of how they react and, and work together now as opposed to when they were kids, as mm -hmm. opposed to when they had their big falling out. Mm -hmm. So it's a smart way of telling the story. I don't know if it was necessarily necessary because, yeah, I, I was just like, okay, this is going to look really weird. Like if I was watching a new version of that fan film and I'm just like, well, yeah, how are they going to get this out there now? And Basically, everybody has the one version already, so is there going to be a new, like, hey, download this new torrent of this fan film where they have the extra scene in there? Well, it's interesting because they don't really show the scene. They show little pieces of it in the end credits, and then they say, to see the scene, go to this web address. It's kind of like at the end of The Devil Inside. They send you to a, a URL. You know, the one thing that kept going through my mind was watching American movie. And then, and how Borchard is is talking about Coven through the whole thing. Yes. And when I went to see American Movie at the Toronto Film Festival a few years ago, or actually quite a few years ago now, they did the the smart thing, which was to show American Movie, and then they showed Coven right after it. Mm -hmm. And what was hilarious to me was for all the bullshit that was just streaming out of Mark Borchard's mouth, he actually delivered with the film. Mm -hmm. Like there are points where he's like doing the whole director thing with holding up his fingers and just like, oh man, it's going to be like, wah, and just like talking <laughs> all this kind of bullshit, you know? And then you watch the movie and you're like, oh my God, that shot really worked. How did he do this? That's amazing. I love that documentary. 
Oh yeah. So I could see some kind of similarities be- between those as far as like, because I have to say like the, the, the filmmakers, the Raiders, cause they, they don't, come out of this unscarred like they've had some bad times after the the original making of the fan film and stuff yes they're not Borchard and shank or anything but it was interesting to see their documentary because you know i watched the documentary about the making of the the scene and about the making of the raiders fan film and then i watched the fan film and i was like okay yeah this actually does hold up compared to you know, the documentary, but it wasn't as impactful as seeing Coven, especially on the big screen and stuff and being like, wow, all that stuff in Mike Shank's music really works in this. You know, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. I, I don't think I've actually seen Coven. Oh, well it's, it's up there, man. It's Romero. It's Argento. It's anybody <laughs> who ends with an O. It's pretty amazing. Uh, is there something to live for? Jesus told me so. You don't know how often we still use that line around this house <laughs> i do too and no one knows what i'm talking about <laughs> every time we try to tell like you know if the dogs are barking at something we'll just be like it's all right it's okay <laughs> something to live for jesus told me so it's the first line of the film man it's got to be on the money here well i have to concur with you i definitely agree that raiders the story of the greatest fan film ever made is definitely one to keep an eye out for it to watch it was a lot of fun and yeah i don't think you necessarily need to see the fan film right afterwards or afterwards at all i think they do a great job of encapsulating what it was and the impact and did a great job with like how the media kind of ate it up and everything so it was nice to see those guys kind of get there you know 15 minutes they did a good thing yeah you see and you see plenty of the movie you see all the scenes that you would want to i think all the iconic ones and there are so many great scenes in the film. <laughs> That's true. God. An enormous Raiders, amount. Raiders of the Lost Ark, still an amazing, amazing movie. And when are they doing the Temple of Doom remake? I can't wait to see. How are they going to pull that guy's heart out of his chest? They're going to really do it. They're going to kickstart it, and they're going to really do it. Find this homeless guy who's got nothing to live for. That's one of Jesus the perks. So. <laughs> yeah. They will actually build a whole like roller coaster for the mine ride thing. Mm-hmm. Yep. No miniatures. No yep. miniatures. <laughs> Thank you, folks, for listening to another episode of The Projection Booth. And especially thanks to our guest and my guest co-host, Rod Lott. Rod, what have you been up to lately? Being a single dad, basically. I am in like year six or seven of flickattack.com, which not enough people go to. I guess there are other movie sites on the Internet. What? Yeah, so I'm told. Uh, But actually, it's just... Some more uh, exclamation marks. (laughs) I need need to put exclamation points, but no, it's just flickattack.com. It's basically one random movie review a day. That's it. No set visits, no begging for presents, no secret spy shenanigans. Simply a review of some obscure movie from, you know, whatever decade. It's updated almost every day. There's some days where I just run out of time. And then I still also run bookgasm.com, which is like in its 11th year. And although it's not as updated as often as it once was, it's still updated a couple times a week. So if, if you like to read and, you know, it's all genre stuff and, uh, you know, genre fiction and occasional nonfiction, that's the place to go. 
So, and I am working on the first Flick Attack book. I'm almost done with it. I've been working on it for several years, but I'm almost, almost done. Are you doing the self-publishing thing, or you got a publisher? No, I'm, I'm doing the self-publishing thing. I mean, I don't know who, but maybe 20 people even want to buy the thing. But I do intend to do one every two or three years. Basically, what it is is just a collection of reviews and uh, some film articles I've done in the past. Uh, actually, part of a past day job that won some awards and stuff from the zine I used to do, Hitch. I did that for like 13 or 14 years. So it's a, just a collection of of film writing from the, geez, like the late 80s up. So I've just handpicked a bunch of stuff and uh, I'm putting that into a book. Well, that sounds great. It will be if I just ever finish designing that cover. That and putting the page numbers on. That's all I have left. I think what would help Flick Attack a lot is if you did, like, funny cartoon animated GIFs of you. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Well, it was great to have you on. I'll be sure to link to your stuff over at our website, projection-boot.com. I'll also have links to where folks can find out more about today's film and where you can link over to our Patreon page where you can make a donation. I guess that's kind of like me asking for presents. You know? <laughs> no, it's presents. P-W-E-S-E-N-T-S, four exclamation points. Me want presents. So yeah, me want presents over at the uh, Patreon site. Just uh, <laughs> go on over there, and every donation you make definitely helps the projection booth take over the world. It's a good goal.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.